Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I am Teddy Schleifer, filling in this week for Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, July 5th, and today, Bill Cohen drops by to talk about two recent stories of his. The first, about crypto winter in the summer of 2022, and the second, about why the Biden Justice Department is blocking a merger between two publishing houses and what that means for the future of antitrust. We'll hear all about that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Happy Tuesday, everyone. Teddy Schleifer here. Peter Hamby gone this week, but I'll be on the mic. And today, after the holiday weekend, we're here with Bill Cohen to talk about the latest and greatest on Wall Street. Hey, Bill, thanks for coming by. Hey, Teddy, great to be here with you. Let's talk about two stories of yours that, that I've been voraciously reading at Puck.News over the last couple of days. Let's start with what's been happening in crypto over the last couple of months. Obviously, the entire market is in tatters. Can you just like give me a quick 101 on where the crypto economy is right now. To start with, like how how bad is it right now? It's definitely bad. If you think of you know, just taking Bitcoin as a proxy because it's probably the most, you know, legitimate slash respected of the cryptocurrencies. It seems to have some intellectual underpinning that actually makes sense, whereas like the thousands of other cryptocurrencies, uh, that have like basically disappeared, you know, make no sense. Not you're, you're not a you're, you're not a Shiba Coin kind of guy, or, or a Doge uh, Coin kind of guy. Uh, I'm not a kind of coin kind of guy at all. Uh, but I'm interested in it. Uh, you know, at least Bitcoin has things that recommend it. But you know, if you bought Bitcoin uh, last November, which is what now uh, six eight months ago. You paid close to $70,000 for the Bitcoin, and now it's worth $20,000. I don't know. That's not the kind of thing that would make me feel too great about uh, Bitcoin. Now, people make speculative investments all the time. That's kind of what makes uh, the world go around that 
makes sort of what makes America sort of a dynamic place to invest and to, you know, own businesses and start businesses. And, you know, sort of like one of the things that we can, you know, boast about in this country still. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of risk involved and, and things don't always work out. So, I mean, this could be just an example of another kind of thing that just didn't work out and you take your lumps and you go away and you think, huh, what was that? What was that all about? And I think that's kind of where we are now. Now, you know, I was talking to this, uh, very interesting lady the other day, uh, a woman named, by the name of Naja Roberts, who's, um, an entrepreneur in, you know, LA, who's a huge advocate for Bitcoin and educating, you know, the, uh, black community, uh, about Bitcoin. She's, and she just teamed up with Jay Z and Jack. Uh, this is the this is the Bitcoin Academy, right? That you that you wrote a little bit about. This is the Bitcoin Academy, the Marcy Projects in Brooklyn. Yeah, and so uh, you know, for her, uh, you know, she sees this downturn as frankly just an opportunity. You know, if you liked it at seventy thousand, you ought to love it at twenty thousand. It's sure. the kind of thing that uh, you know Warren Buffett says about whatever Occidental Petroleum or Disney or whatever he buys. Right. I mean, if you're if you're if you're hodling for the long term, um, then like, right, it's just like, you know, what is what is a six month downturn in, you know, the centuries long revolution in, in finance? Right. I mean, uh, it's a buying opportunity. Right. I mean, I mean, the whole premise of this is that this is like an entirely new asset. Right. That is going to revolutionize the ways in which uh people accrue wealth and make investments. And like six months is a pretty short amount of time in, in that scheme of things, right? I mean, how long have certain public companies been been operating or how long has the US dollar been operating or how long has, you know, capitalism itself been operating, right? I mean, that, that makes you think, okay, who cares if things are down 50% in the last six months? Right. I mean, it's like you could have said, oh, uh, you know, the internet in after, you know, 95 to... March of 2001 or whatever, you know, you would have said, oh, well, well, if that's that, then I guess, you know, pets.com has gone down the tubes. I guess that's the end of the internet. Well, obviously that would have been quite wrong. I mean, uh, the internet back then was kind of like the wild west and there was a lot of um, excess and speculation and, you know, things calmed down and, you know, we had some real corporate winners. And I think generally as a whole, uh, people have, benefited uh, from the internet. Obviously, it's got some negative aspects that you could talk about all day long, but I think we're sort of in that web.1 uh, phase of, of cryptocurrency where it's just like kind of the Wild West and pure speculation. There's going to be winners and losers, and once it settles out, right. then you know we'll see what really has got substance to it. Bill, how much of this do you think is related to the lack of clarity on, on regulation. Um, so, so for people who have not followed every every twist and turn of this, I mean, crypto has been around for what a decade in in some form or another. Well, the Satoshi white paper was written interestingly in October of two thousand eight. The first bitcoins, right. I think, started appearing in two thousand nine. So it's what you know, thirteen years or so. But there's been like, I mean, is, is it fair to say there's been like zero real? energy from at least from Washington about about how to regulate this things on until the last couple of years I mean I mean I, I'm, I mean I feel like it's been very much a 
very much a Biden administration thing. Like, I mean, well, Gary Gensler, you know, the new SEC chairman, you know, he taught a taught courses in Bitcoin and cryptocurrency at MIT. So, and so everybody was sort of thinking that Gary would get around to um, to, to to putting forth regulation about this as SEC commissioner and. You know, he, he still might. I don't want to knock him for not yet, but basically it, it hasn't happened yet. But, you know, Teddy, I don't, I don't really see it that way. I mean, regulation, schmegulation, you know, why would you invest in something that is just like pure speculation? I mean, you literally need a greater fool to come along and buy it from you. You know, it's not like cash flows you can point to, you know, it generates this much you know, EBITDA and, you know, put a multiple of that and, you know, it makes this great product that we just love, you know, and everybody wants or, you know, or they don't want or whatever it is. It's not, it's just, it's just this idea. It's a confidence game. And at the moment, the confidence is waning, but it may come back again. And so much of this feels being in Silicon Valley, like feels generational. I think if you talk with crypto true believers who are you know, the same people who are investing in Dogecoin or or buying Robinhood stock or, you know, AMC. It's like everything you just said, they, they would argue like, well, isn't that true of the US dollar or of the euro or of, you know, like sort of the whole point, I feel like of lots of people who are passionate believers in crypto is that the critique that you're making of speculation and in crypto assets, like they would say, well, that, I'm not saying I agree with this for what it's worth, but that they would they they sort of turn that critique on like how is it any different than the speculation on a euro or on you know a yen, right? I mean that's that's how they view micro 100 and macro 101 and just U.S. capitalism in general. Sure, I mean it's clearly a reaction to centralized banking slash capitalism. You know, it's definitely a reaction to the uh, the meltdown of the financial system in 2008 and then the bailouts, it was hoped that it would be a hedge against inflation and and printing the printing presses of the Federal Reserve and centralized, you know, currencies. Uh, yeah, but unfortunately, um, it's underperformed, you know, almost every, you know, uh, stock group except maybe SPACs. So, um the promise of being a hedge against inflation really hasn't worked this time. Maybe it'll work another time. Look, you know, people are, are really, really good about convincing themselves of the wonderfulness of these new kinds of things. And, um, you know, it's how it's going to revolutionize the world and change the world. And, you know, it, it might. I mean, people had their, as you know, we were talking about, people were skeptical about the internet for a long time. And, uh, I, you know, it clearly has uh, revolutionized uh, everything, you know, whether this will too, you know, remains to be seen. But, you know, the difference between like, yeah, look, the dollar is a confidence game, right? What is it? It's just a freaking piece of paper. But, but the fact is you can use that money, whether in paper or digital form, to buy things. You really can't use Bitcoin to buy very much. Bill, let's take a quick break. Then I want to talk about an entirely different story of yours. We'll be back in a second. Hey, Powers That Be listeners, I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. 
Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you a curated list of gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. I use Etsy all the time and have for years. I bought my brother some artwork. I bought my wife some jewelry. I even bought a rug for our living room on Etsy. I love it. But there's a lot of pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas for friends and family members around the holidays or birthdays in my life. And sometimes I get super stressed trying to find the perfect thing. But now with gift mode on Etsy, I can search hundreds of gifting personas and find so many incredible items. And I actually just found the perfect gift for a buddy who's just as into Cincinnati sports as I am, a hot cup of Joe, Joe Burrow mug. That's right, I found that on Etsy, it's amazing. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic, try Gift Mode on Etsy now. We're back here with Bill Cohen. Bill, um, you had a new story this week about the U.S. government potentially, or, or I guess still, blocking a, a massive consolidation in the book publishing industry. The reason it was just such a great column is you both understand how antitrust works, but also you've written books yourself. You have a new book coming out later this year. So you had sort of the practitioner point of view on this, but also just someone who knows kind of how deals get done in general. Give us the quick overview of where the Penguin Random House acquisition of S&S stands right now. I understand there's a big court case coming next month. Uh, yes, exactly in a month. It uh, doesn't seem to be any stopping it now. August 1st, uh, the trial uh, is set to kick off in Washington, D.C. You know, by regular sort of M&A standards, is a small deal you know there was a lot of fuss kicked up that you know matt our colleague matt wrote about involving you know uh caa and icm a a combination in the agent uh hollywood agent space and this is sort of uh similar in that way it's a little bit bigger look cbs or what used to be called cbs what then used to be called viacom cbs which is now called paramount global owns Simon & Schuster and, uh, you know, wants to focus on streaming and developing content and all sorts of other things. And, you know, it's newly revived Top Gun uh, franchise. And so, you know, it wanted to divest itself of the book publishing uh, division and it put it up for sale uh, about 18 months ago. And Penguin Random House, which is the big kahuna in the publishing industry, you know, uh, no surprise, was able to pay the most, $2.175 billion, and, you know, won the day over, I think, uh, you know, HarperCollins, which is owned by Rupert Murdoch. Right from the start, I mean, it was making essentially the big five publishing houses going down to the big four. And, of course, that's like, uh, you know, a horizontal merger and all the alarm bells went off um, about antitrust issues and, you know, the management of, uh, Penguin Random House was confident that there wouldn't be. I think everybody else thought there would be, and there has been. And so it's a weird argument that the government is making to try to block this. And if they said, okay, well, 
you know, the big five is going to big four. That's going to reduce competition. People are going to have to pay more for books and, and, uh, you know, it's already concentrated as it is. And, uh, you know, this is not going to be good for consumers. It's not going to be good for competition. I think that's kind of like a winning argument, but unfortunately, and again, I'm not a lawyer. And so I, you know, I'm certainly not an antitrust lawyer, so I don't really know how this all will play out, which is what makes this so interesting. This is not investment advice. Nor legal advice. Just a podcast. Yeah. Just a podcast among laymen. Uh, they have made the argument that somehow this combination will decrease competition for ad- author advances at the highest levels. Okay, well, fine. At the highest levels, you know, authors who command those kinds of advances, and I'm talking, you know, a million dollar plus advances, they're going to get them from the big four, from the big five, from the big one, from the big two. So, Five into four isn't going to really change that, but that's literally their argument. So, I mean, I just think what's 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 interesting here is that the government is sort of trying to block this, which is sort of part and parcel of the Biden administration's new stance on trying to be tougher on antitrust. Uh, obviously, the Trump administration lost their big antitrust effort trying to block the combination of AT&T and Time Warner, which was clearly politically driven because Trump didn't like CNN. That, of course, uh, proved to be a disaster for the government, proved to be a disaster for AT&T. I'm struck by just like, the, the, you know, yeah, $2 billion. Like, I guess, you know, I'm, th- I'm sitting here thinking like, who cares? Yeah, right. I mean, you know, it's, you know, the book publishing industry is not uh, is not media consolidation in the, in the, you know, Time Warner stratosphere. But, you know, you want to have a robust opportunity for competition. But as I pointed out in the piece, which I think is kind of, to me, the crux of the matter, not not what the government is saying, is that each of these publishing contracts has a non-negotiable sort of aspect of a contract of adhesion where, you know, they have an embedded option uh, for your next book. And so for established authors, you know, advances are much less pie in the sky, sort of hope springs eternal. They, you know, they actually look at how many books you sold and what your prospects are for your new book. And, you know, it's sort of hard to debate that. And like, if they paid you a big advance last time, your book didn't, wasn't a bestseller, you know, it's going to be hard for you to get a big advance for the next book. And, you know, that's not really debatable. And that embedded option means you're sort of just negotiating with your current publisher, unless you want to break free of that. And you can, but then you're starting all over and, you know, it's just a pain in the ass. And so that would be nice if we could just do away with that embedded option. Now, that would be a great boon to authors, much more than whether they block this merger. Bill, before we let you go, do you want to uh, plug your, your your new book later out, out later this year very, very quickly? Sure, I'll plug away. You better, you better get used to it. Yeah, well, I used to plug in a way. You know how to sell these by this point in your career. but It's not enough, Teddy, to write a book. You have to also have to sell a book uh, many times. So uh, the new book is called Power Failure, The Rise and Fall of American icon. It's about uh, the rise and fall of GE, which was once the most respected, most valuable company in the world. And it no longer is. And so how did that happen? It's the usual story of a dead body on the ground and how did it get there? All right. Out later this year. That's right. November 15th. All right, Bill. Thank you so much for swinging by. Thank you, Teddy. 
Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.